Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, sharks and minnows, whales and fry, and all denizens from the deep. Welcome to today's show. Today, we're doing things a bit differently and interviewing two people in one show. Double bang for the buck. Today, I'm chatting with Emily Cunningham and Daniel Moore, both marine biologists hailing from the United Kingdom. It seems that Daniel and Emily have done a bit of everything from graduate school studying deep sea sharks and dolphins to managing teams in Indonesia and saving the UK's wild waters through grant writing. Daniel and Emily do a really great job of highlighting how marine biology isn't just a career, but can be a lifestyle, one with some really, really magical moments and the ability to make great impacts. Without further ado, here is the dynamic duo of Emily Cunningham and Daniel Moore. Daniel and Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello. Thank you for having us. It's. I think it might be interesting having two people on the show. (laughs) Yeah, we'll try not to talk over each other. (laughs) No guarantees. Okay, sounds good. So how did you guys meet initially? Uh, So we both went to Bangor University, which is a university in North Wales in the UK, Um, We both did the same degree, but we were a couple of years apart and we actually met because we had the same tutor. So we were in um, like tutorials, though they were mixed age groups. And then I also met Daniel because Daniel taught me how to dive. So Daniel was my dive instructor (laughs) and that's where the romance began. (laughs) Might have abused my instructor kind of uh, right there. Yeah, (laughs) staff, uh, teacher, student. (laughs) relationship but no it's all good we've been together 10 years now so yeah yeah oh that's so fantastic so Daniel what got you into diving then how did you become a dive instructor um so I I learned when I was um just a teenager um and it was just something that uh, my my uncle did at the time and um, I was curious and went along and then learned firstly in a, a pretty grim pool um so indoor swimming pool with sort of um pretty grim things floating the bottom of it and then my introduction to kind of more mm. open water was uh cold uh, quarries and lakes in the uk but somehow that didn't deter my my passion and interest and eventually made it into the sea and loved it so much that um i kind of quickly went through the qualifications and then when I was at university passed my instructor's exam so started teaching um, while I was studying for my undergraduate. It's a great job to have while you're studying to be a marine biologist. Yeah it seems to fit pretty well. So Emily what made you decide that you wanted to get dive certified? Um, I think it was something when I went to university and you in the UK in your first week, uh, our first week of university is called Freshers Week. So your first year of university, you're called a fresher. Um, so I went to the Freshers Fair in Freshers Week and saw the dive club. And um, so in the UK, our dive um, 
kind of the scheme that we have. It's called British Subaqua Club. So it's kind of a club setup. So lots of universities and towns have them. And there was one for Bangui University. So I thought, oh, that's something I'm starting my marine biology degree. I would love to be able to dive and experience what I'm studying. Um, not really knowing what I was letting myself in for. But I went along and they kind of became my university family, my club. And it really just opened my eyes to how magical the wildlife of the UK is. I think before I went to university, I just assumed that all wildlife was elsewhere, that I had to go to cool tropical places to see cool things. And actually, there was so much just on the doorstep where, where I learned to dive. And that really kind of changed my life, actually. That's wonderful. So where did you learn to dive and what wildlife did you see that kind of changed your mind? Uh, So my first, uh, so like Daniel, most of us who learn to dive in the UK, your first kind of open water dives are in a quarry. So we have lots of flooded quarries, which is not the most inspiring place, but it's, you know, it's calm (laughs) waters to to do your skills. And they've normally got kind of an assortment of sunken buses and motorbikes and gnome gardens and things for you to look at whilst you're learning um but then my first dive in the sea um the visibility was about 10 centimeters and I think I saw a starfish but it didn't really matter it was just I was <laughs> diving in the sea and diving in this place that I, where I went to university was the place where I'd gone on holiday every year as a child and to be able to experience the underwater environment was was magical somewhere that feels familiar and then you go into the sea and you realize um, there's a whole new world kind of just beyond what you can normally see and then towards it to five open water dives and my last my fifth open water dive when we got to the dive site there was dolphins and I think that for me just was like wow I, I didn't know any of this was here and if I hadn't have gone diving I would never have, have encountered that and just yeah it opens a whole new world and I think you don't have to be able to dive to do that if you are able to dive it's something that if you can do pursue but snorkeling at the very least pretty much everybody can can get a mask and snorkel and get into some water and and actually see particularly if you're interested in marine biology it's a way to really experience what you study because it's totally different than reading about it in a book i feel like we're perhaps painting a um a bad picture of of uk diving but it's actually incredible yeah um i've dived some pretty awesome places around the world but still my favorite dives have been in uk waters mine too um and in fact, the best visibility I've ever had underwater still remains to be in the UK. It's yet to be beaten. That was a, a dive in really? Scotland and it was 50 meter visibility. Um, and that's yet to be surpassed anywhere. Yeah. Wow. 50 meters is pretty impressive. What were you, where were you diving and what were you seeing? So this was um, at a place called Scapa Flow. Um, so it's in the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland. And it's where... There's a large collection of um, sunken battleships um, that were scuttled at the end of World War One. So they're German battleships. And um, this particular dive that had the incredible visibility was just in the entrance to, to Scapa Flow. So it's quite well flushed with um, sort of clear Atlantic water. Um, the wreck we were diving on was sort of sat on the on the seabed um, at sort of 45 metres. And we jumped into uh, into the water off the boat, looked down below us, and you could see the whole wreck just laid out on the seabed just from the surface. And as we sort of descended and you sort of realised what the kind of um, horizontal visibility was like, it was it was mind-blowing. And I think the most incredible thing for me was that um, you could see what life we had in the UK um, that you don't normally see. Normally you get sort of five, ten metres of visibility and you see the occasional fish. And here I could see whole shoals of fish circling around this wreck. Um, 
and you kind of usually are used to those sort of pictures from sort of dive magazines that show warm tropical sites and to see that at home in the UK was was just mind-blowing. Yeah, cold water usually is very nutrient rich and it has lots of life, but it's not something that a lot of people see. That's wonderful that you guys are able to experience that and see that. So how did you know, and this is for both of you, you pick who goes first. How did you know you wanted to be a marine biologist? So you like you both went to university ready to study this. Was there a defining moment that kind of solidified that? Or were you just like, that sounds cool. I'll, I'll try that. Yeah. So for me, um, there was definitely a defining moment. And that was during my sort of um, my learning to dive phase. So before that, um, I was making university choices. And I knew that I was just interested um, in sort of general science. And um, in the UK, you um, select specific um, science courses. Um, so you don't sort of do your sort of broad study that you do uh, in the US and then focus later. You focus quite early in the UK. And so my university courses that I was applying for were um, sort of paleontology, genetics. And then I had this odd one that was marine biology in there. Um, and I didn't really know wh- which I wanted to go for. <laughs> And then um, I was I learned to dive, and as soon as I got into the sea, I knew which course that um, I was going to go for, and it was marine biology. So, yeah, that was it for me. For me, it was a lot earlier. I have known I wanted to be a marine biologist since I was about eight. It was all I ever wanted to be. I think it's one of those careers that everyone has a little phase where they say, oh, I want to be a marine biologist, and then you grow out of it. And I think my family expected me to grow out of it, but it was – it was always what I wanted to be. I don't think there was necessarily a defining moment. I've just always been obsessed with the sea. Um, I think my happiest childhood memories are spending time rock pooling, paddling in the sea, exploring, um, going to aquariums um, and that kind of thing. And I think it's always just been a little bit of an obsession. I remember when I was at high school and you go for your careers talks and they'd say, what do you want to be? And they'd say, I want to be a marine biologist. And they'd say, no, you need to pick a real job. That's not a thing. Because where I'm from, that you know, nobody goes to do that. <laughs> you know, I was the first one in my family to go to university, and I certainly wasn't from a background where that was normal. People just sort of stayed where we're from. Um, but actually, it, it just was this. I think obsession would probably be a fair description, and and that was always what I was going to be, no matter no matter what. And I'm really proud of the fact I can now call myself one. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you both graduate from university with your bachelor's and you both continued on and got your master's degree. And Daniel, you're pursuing your PhD right now. So what made you both decide to continue on? Um, Well, I think we both enjoyed our undergraduate degrees so much. It was it was never really an option to not continue. Mm -hmm. Um, I think do Mm -hmm. studying for our degrees only made it uh, that obsession a little bit worse <laughs> we just wanted to know more so <laughs> it was never an option to not continue I think so you had a really cool master's didn't you and then yeah I, w- I was particularly lucky with um what I, I studied for my master's project so I looked at deep sea sharks in particular looking at sort of population biology and how we age sharks um so if you take, for instance, um, sort of the big sharks that we all know and love, great white sharks, if you want to age them, and it's relatively simple, you take a vertebrae and they have uh, rings just like a tree. So you can count the rings and know how old the shark is. When you look at deep water sharks, um, the ossification of their bones is much less. Um, we all know that um, sharks have cartilaginous skeletons, but they have a degree of ossification and, and hardness. But when you go deeper in the water column, that becomes less and less. So those 
growth rings don't stand out, or at least can't be seen very easily. So my um, masters were looking at how we make those growth bands stand out. And I was uh, successful and able to do that in some species that hadn't been done before. Um, and it was a sort of a fascinating project that just um, realized how much made me realize how much we don't know yet and how much there is still to do out there. So it was like, well, if I can find and find out about this and discover this, what else can I find out about? And what else can I learn that's new that sort of humanity doesn't yet know? So it was just really exciting and, and drove me on to do more. What species of shark were you looking at and how did you actually sample Okay, so I was looking at um, a few different species from um, sort of different depths in the water column. So um, my shallowest shark species uh, was um, a small shark called the blackmouth dogfish. Um, mm -hmm. And it was found about 500 meters below the ocean surface. Um, and then the next species I was looking at was a species called velvet dogfish, um, found at about a thousand meters below the surface. And then my deepest um, species were actually, in fact, a couple of uh, small cat shark species, um, uh, things like the Iceland uh, cat shark and the ghost cat shark. Um, and they are found about a mile below the surface, so about 1500 meters below the surface. Um, and the way that we caught those was um, from a research vessel out in the North Atlantic, and um, we uh, towed a trawl behind uh, behind the ship. So it was incredible to watch. Actually, the they control this trawl um, just by pulling on the on the warps, which are the, the ropes attaching it to the ship, ever so slightly. And because of the depth that you're trawling at, so the Troll might be a mile below the surface, but it means it's about three miles behind the ship. And they're controlling it and flying it down these canyons using computers that just tweak these warps just ever so slightly to get it to fly down these canyons. It's incredible to sort of see how they do that. But that's how we caught um, our sharks. We obviously then brought them up to the surface. Unfortunately, they, they are dead by the time they get to the surface because of the intense pressure changes. So the, the barotrauma tends to kill them. Um, but then um, I was extracting uh, the vertebrae from um, the sharks and then cleaning them up uh, back in the lab and attempting to age them. And you were successful. I was successful in some of the species, not the very deepest. Um, I just couldn't get those to work. But um, on the shallower species, we used like a combination of different dyes and acid baths to kind of etch in those uh, growth bands so that it became more visible um, and so that we were able to record them. What's the oldest shark that you caught? Um, I think the oldest shark was actually uh, quite young, um, probably about 12 years old. And what's the what's the age range on those sharks? Do you know? Oh, uh, now you're asking. It was some years ago. Um, I mean, <laughs> they're all quite small sharks. So they don't live particularly particularly long. They have uh, okay. fairly short lifespans. Um, I think you're looking at somewhere sort of 15 years or something like that. Okay, so kind of the older end of the sh of their lifespan. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. And Emily, what did you study with your masters? Uh, so my master's research was looking at the spatial ecology, which means uh, where things live during their lives, of bottlenose dolphins in the Irish Sea, which is the sea between uh, Wales and Ireland in, on the British Isles. So um, it sounds very glamorous. I did do three months of very exciting field work, which was taking photos of bottlenose dolphins' fins. So their fins have a unique um, 
ma uh, pattern of marks. So when dolphins play fight with each other, they get these nicks and notches and scratches on their dorsal fin. So how each one's dorsal fin, it kind of acts like a fingerprint. So we can identify individuals using their fins. So I looked at I collected photos and then I also looked at a catalogue of photos that had never been analysed before. So this catalogue of photos was taken in between 1989 and 1994. And I matched these fins from this old catalogue with the fin images I took and also another catalogue that other organisations. So we had a couple of organisations that generously contributed their catalogues. And from that, I discovered that the same dolphins were using exactly the same area 20 years later. So mums were still coming back with their calves. We knew it was a nursery area, but we didn't know how long that they'd been coming there. And this was showing uh, that 20 years had passed. So when I did it, we had data from 2010 and we'd found from between 1990 and 2010, same females are coming and having their babies and raising their calves in the same area. And um, that area was a protected area. So it just added to the reasons why it needed to stay protected. And that organisation that I worked with is also using that to help protect and conserve the dolphins as well. So uh, the fieldwork was amazing, but kind of the reality sometimes of research is a lot of hours spent at a computer. So I looked at around 10,000 images of bottomless dolphin fins. I knew them all off by heart <laughs> by the end. I knew them all as if they were close friends i think by the end of it but um it was it was kind of cool when i would do subsequent field work so i carried on running winter surveys um for the organization in question and i'd be out on the boat and a dolphin would pop up and i'd know exactly who it was and where it'd been and how it'd spent its life because you can recognize this this pattern of um, notches and nicks on their fin so it was it was really interesting and i have kept that skill so i have continued to work in photo identification of cetaceans since so my latest piece of research is looking at humpback whales um so with those we we use the marks on their the flukes on the underside of their tails to also look at, at who they were and where they'd been during their life so um yeah it's nice to have that combination of field work and and the lab work it's nice to actually get to see your your study subjects in their natural habitat too as well as just looking at them on your computer screen <laughs> Absolutely. It's always wonderful when you can get out and get in the field and then also see beautiful wildlife, especially dolphins, because I think everybody yeah. has a little bit of a soft spot for dolphins. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't realize that about whale flukes. They also serve as more or less like a fingerprint. They're, yes. They have individual nicks and marks that identify them. Uh, so different species, different things. So humpback whales, the underside of their flukes and also the, the a combination of the fluke, the fin and any markings on their tummy. But it's mostly just the fluke um, markings that we use. So that's some um, kind of pigmentation um, and marks sometimes from orca bites and things like that. That's how we um, identify individual um, humpback whales, uh, different species. So sperm whales can be identified from from notches in their flukes as well. Um, it depends on how well marked they are, but it can be used as a way to sort of track them in a non-invasive way through their life. It doesn't disturb the animal to take a photo. So rather than having to tag them, um, which just, you know, I don't I don't have an issue with tagging as long as it's done in a in a sensible, well thought out way with a good research goal in mind. But actually, photo ID can be a nice non-invasive way of studying um, these ocean giants, particularly when they're passing through an area and there's people taking photos anyway. Absolutely. That's awesome. How how much more difficult is it to get a photo of a fluke or a fin of a whale versus getting one of the dorsal fin of the dolphin? Much harder. So <laughs> yeah. uh, bottlenose dolphins are 
I mean, there's, there's a great variety in their personalities. So some of your, so for example, in my study population, some of them were very um, cheeky, flirty chaps. <laughs> so they would come to the boat at the first chance. They'd be straight over checking you out, really interested. And, and those ones, you, there's a bias towards them because they have that pro boat behavior. They'll come straight to the boat you're on. You get really good um, fin shots of them. And then unfortunately, they'll be the shy ones who, as soon as they see a boat, they swim in the other direction. So it's very hard. <laughs> to to get those um, fin shots but actually as a general rule bottlenose dolphins are a lot easier to to get those fin shots of um humpback whales uh mixed they if they just happen to be fluking near you then you can get that fluke shot but it is difficult to get a good fluke shot sometimes you'll get a little bit of a corner of a fluke and that's all you've got to work with but that's why we try and use the combination of, of the fins because a dorsal fin of a humpback whale is is more it's easier to get but unfortunately they're not as unique as um as with a bottlenose dolphin so sometimes it's quite hard to conclusively use that a lot of humpback whale fins look like each other so they have to have something really distinct really individual for you to be confident that that is definitely the animal that you're looking at so there is a there's always an element of human error in there but we we do right. use um we have at least two independent views on each so if i make a match to um of two whales or two dolphins at least two other scientists will also have a look at those images to confirm the match before we'll say conclusively yes this whale slash dolphin was seen in these two places okay check and recheck that makes sense yes it's pretty incredible that you were able to identify the bottlenose dolphin by their dorsal fins though i'm sure you were asked to have on the boat just like oh no that's that's henry yeah (laughs) (laughs) it is nice and when when you see them with the car for the first time so where we were was a nursery area so you've perhaps seen uh the female um in the winter and she was on her own and then you'd see her in the summer and she had a calf with her you'd be like oh that means she's come here to to give birth and in that short time she has given birth and we'd see days old calves they're, they're so small and they still have fetal folds which is where they've been folded up in the womb so they have these little stripes down their side um so that's pretty magic when you know it's probably the first boat that that it's met and you're getting to see it when it's very new and not very good at swimming and not very good at breathing, but gorgeous. (laughs) Oh, that's so adorable. (laughs) So you both have since graduated with your master's and what, what, what happened after you graduated? Were you able to find jobs right away or did you kind of, it kind of seems like you guys set out to do your own thing more or less. Um, So what is life since graduation kind of, started out as after i graduated because i was uh two years ahead of emily yeah. during undergrad um i i volunteered in the lab that i did my master's in um and then off that was able to get employed for um, a couple of years working on a couple of different projects looking at uh, different fish species one looking at kind of a an estuarine fish species that's become locally extinct in parts of the uk and trying to understand how we can grow it in captivity that we could then re-release it back into these areas where it's gone extinct Uh, and then another project looking at um, a sea trout which is a salmonid type fish and trying to use uh, stable isotopes to understand where this fish goes when it goes out to sea it has you know part of its life in the river and part of its life at sea so uh, that was really interesting and then that enabled um sort of me to sort of stay in the same place where where emily was when she was finishing off her, her master's yeah and then when i finished my master's i in the last sort of month or so of um 
of my study I started looking for jobs and I knew by that point so I'd done my I did a research master's so it was 12 months on one project and when I started that I thought that I wanted to do a PhD and I realized through the course of that that actually I, I knew that pure research wasn't for me and and so the PhD idea went out the window and during my undergraduate and my master's which I did at the same university um, I had been volunteering with a local wildlife charity and just loved it absolutely loved it and realized that my heart was in using science to conserve species so I knew I wanted to go and work in kind of more applied science um, preferably conservation so in when I was finishing up and looking for jobs um, because Daniel had then settled and had a job in North Wales where we were based I was looking for jobs in that area and found a job with uh, with the Environment Agency which is um, the government's um, one of the government's departments for the environment in the UK so I, I got a job there as um, sort of entry-level environment assistant working on lots of coastal environmental uh, management which was a really great kind of start to my career and I was very lucky to get the job and um, it allowed us again to be in the same place for the time we wanted to be to be there yeah but I think the key to both of us to, in getting those positions we both had was was volunteering yeah and I'd recommend that to anyone um, who thinks they want a career in marine biology and to start early like even when you start your degree um, that is a great time to, to volunteer with someone who you might potentially want to work with later when you finish um, I think a lot of students don't realise, but when you're at university, you have a lot of free time, perhaps more than you perhaps realise. Um, and that time is, is you yeah. know, rare afterwards when you have to sort of pay bills as such. So um, even just giving a little bit of time each week to, to go and volunteer is, is really important. But the, the, I'd say there's one key thing with volunteering is um, commit to something that you can definitely um, hold to. Um, and don't let people down. Um, you don't yeah. want that black mark against your name. But yeah. so be realistic. If you can only do one afternoon every month, then that's all you can do. Do that and stick to it. And yeah, um, yeah, build yourself up on a good on a good name early on. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because we well, now when we do careers talks, we we say to people, you know, look around the room. There's you know 100, 200 people graduating with exactly the same degree as you, and you're all going to be looking for jobs in the same place and then you think there's well, 10 or more universities in the UK that do marine biology so you, you you multiply that number by 10 and you are all going to be walking away with a BSc in marine biology you need something on your CV that sets you apart so when we both graduated it wasn't just our degree on our CV it was this volunteering experience and a reference so both of us had a good reference from so me from the charity and Daniel from the lab that he'd volunteered in and that I think just it just shows that it gives you some backup to what you say you're passionate about so saying you're passionate about marine conservation or marine biology is one thing but then having some proof and another independent person to back you up that goes a long way and I know for me when I started my job and you know they tell you like oh the reason you got it was because it wasn't just your degree on your CV you had something to to show as well so um and if nothing else volunteering is fun you, yeah, know, you get to experience is. some really cool things and meet meet amazing interesting inspiring people who help you you know when you first start out, I yeah. don't know what I want to do in marine yeah. biology. You get to test and, stuff out that yeah. you um, may or may not like. And, um, you know, you get to 
try that out without having to commit to yeah. a six month, 12 month contract of work or something. You can see if that's for you. And if it's not, then you, you can try and volunteer for something else. Yeah. That's wonderful advice. That's something I, I continually tell people because it is so important. And, and I think you make good points about one being um, holding yourself accountable and actually um, committing to something that you can actually hold yourself to. But also, you know, if it doesn't work out, then it's not like you committed to a job that you're going to quit after six, like it's fine, you know, Mm -hmm. three, six months down the line, if you need to leave or you decide that you want to pursue something else that's interesting, you can kind of leave on a good foot. Whereas if you were employed, that's kind of a short term employment, unless that was already, you know, the contract. So great advice. So one thing I definitely wanted to bring up with you guys, you both just got back from Indonesia and I'm loving your photos and I'm slightly (laughs) jealous. So can we chat about your time in Indonesia and what is Operation Wallacea? And I might be butchering the name. And no, no, nope, that was bang on. <laughs> okay. And how you guys kind of got involved with that? Hey, so um, Operation Wallacea is a, an organization that's um, based in the UK but runs um, sort of conservation and science expeditions um, all around the world um, in 15 different countries, in fact. Uh, they mainly concentrate on sort of tropical regions, but they have a few kind of uh, Mediterranean or semi-temperate regions as well now. And they run expeditions for school groups as well as for university volunteers and um, sort of uh, students who want to do their um, undergraduate dissertations or master's theses with them. They also have PhD students um, uh, doing their research out on these different sites. Uh, and the big strength about Operation Wallacea is that it has a huge network of academics who go and use these field sites for their own research. Um, and whilst there, these academics support students um, at the sites. And um, there's a, a real sort of close interaction between scientists and students. So students can build up a big um, sort of uh, experience of different research techniques and and how field research is done. So um, during my PhD, um, one of the things that I enjoyed the most uh, was planning my field work. Um, uh, strangely, almost as much as actually doing the field work, the planning was was the exciting bit for me. So um, I sort of realised that this is something I'd want to try more of, and I'm very lucky that the funders of my PhD. Um, allow me to take uh, some time off and do like an industrial placement. Um, so I approached Operation Wallacea with um, sort of a question, can I come and work for you for a bit? And um, they were really supportive of this. And so I've been working with them now um, for nearly seven months since January. Um, I'm just about to finish with them. It's my last week in the office before I uh, head back to finishing my PhD. Um, so what I've been doing while I've been working with Operation Walsia is um, uh, overseeing a couple of their rainforest camps um, in uh, uh, Southeast Sulawesi on an island called Bhutan. Um, it's strange being a, a marine biologist, but operating in um, the rainforest. Um, but I think one of the key sort of hopes for me doing this place and was to get sort of uh, management experience and experience of running um science that is certainly challenging to me because it wasn't uh, it's not my sort of background field um and so i i totally got this this experience there's something that was new and challenging um in a different environment different field um 
and it's it's been incredible actually some of the things i've seen the people i've met um and then i get to take all those sort of skills and experiences that i've i've built up during this time and um sort of then go back to my phd uh, knowing that i can take those skills forward so it's been really useful and really good wonderful so what did you what was what was your day-to-day like while you were in Sulawesi or was there a typical day-to-day? There is definitely not a typical day-to-day. Um, mm-hmm. My my sort of field season out there, um, which was nine weeks in total, um, is hugely varied. And um, being in a sort of managerial position, I was sort of hopping between different airports and bringing students in and then sort of going into the forest camps and talking to the scientists and make sure all the science is um, running correctly dealing with any sort of uh, personnel issues, logistics issues. Um, During the whole nine weeks, I never stayed in one place for more than two days. Um, So it was quite tiring, lots of on the move. But say, um, for the days that I would be in the rainforest, I'd typically wake up at sort of um, probably about half past five in the morning and sort of check that the bird scientists who were going out on survey early, that they were all okay and uh, had everything they need and were going out early then I'd sort of have breakfast about six um, then there'd be various other, other surveys going out throughout the morning um, so we'd have surveys going out for sort of megafauna so that would be sort of uh, monkeys and um, other amazing mammals that we have in the region um, there'd be habitat surveys going out who would be looking to quantify the amount of carbon in different parts of the forest um, uh, the reason we want to know that is that it can be uh, useful for sort of uh, potentially tapping into funding from sort of carbon trading schemes, that sort of thing, um, for conservation. Um, there would be surveys going out for her, her, her petafauna, so that's the snakes and reptiles. And so you come spend your morning sort of making sure that all the surveys are going out okay and everything is running smoothly. Uh, lunch at midday. The afternoon was usually a little bit of downtime, maybe a chance to chat to people coming back from surveys, see how it's gone, um, so any issues and make sure everyone's happy. Um, and then in the evening, there'd be a load more surveys going out into the forest because um, just like in the marine environment, the the animals that you see out and about completely change when, when the sun goes down. So um, there'd be bat surveys going out. There'd be different types of herpetofauna uh, out and about. So there'd be more, more surveys for them. Um, so it was hugely varied, uh, incredibly exciting. You never knew what you were going to see from a day, day-to-day basis, but it was really, really interesting. That sounds fascinating. An exhausting and fascinating nine weeks. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely still recovering, but it was, it was a fantastic <laughs> experience. And was this a paid position while you were out there? Yeah, so this was um, in the way that um, my PhD funders um, have continued to fund me to do this placement. So um, okay. I'm I'm quite lucky in that my funding comes from the UK government. Um, and so certainly if anyone wants to do a PhD in the UK, I would certainly think when they're looking to apply for a PhD that make sure they know where that funding is coming from. Um, I've certainly seen lots of people doing PhDs who spend most of their time applying for funding to keep going. Um, but if you know that you've got a good funding part right from the beginning, it gives you a lot of open opportunities. And um, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Yes, that's that's kind of why I brought it up. There's a lot of people that have you know big goals for their education and don't really know how they're going to fund it and so they spend lots of time trying to write grants or finding grants or what any sort of funding. So that's wonderful that you have such a 
such constant funding to be able to kind of do all of this and kind of diversify your portfolio a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there has certainly still been a large element of uh, applying for funding. Mm-hmm. So that my sort of topic is um, genomics um, in bottlenose dolphins and using sort of next generation sequencing techniques uh, uses a huge amount of funding. In fact, uh, most of my actual sort of research funding, the allocation for that has been used upon sequencing. So all of my field work has been applied, um, has been funded through grant applications. Um, okay. So there's definitely still some el- element of that. But I think That's a good skill to have to is, learn. Yeah. If you want to go into science or conservation, a significant proportion of your daily time budget is is thinking about where how you continue to fund either your research or your work um so i mean i think as long as you have that core funding it's almost the best situation to be in you you know you've got the money to continue your phd but actually to do that the field work to go to conferences etc it gives you that skill of of having to source funding you know Mm -hmm. to seek out um calls for applications and then go through that application process which in itself um a really important skill to have once you graduate either from your master's or from your PhD and going out into into the real world, whether that real world is academia or or my world, the conservation yeah. world. And whether it's science or conservation, you know, we all need money to do the work we do. Yeah. So it's gotta come from somewhere. Yeah. And like Emily says, it's a really important skill. So you both just brought up a couple of different points that I wanted to cover. Um Emily, you have lots of experience getting funding. You have secured mm-hmm. over five million pounds of funding. That's inc- incredible and impressive. How, like, how did you do this? Where did you, where did you apply? Um, and what was your funding covering? It's all to conserve the UK wildlife, correct? Yes. So um, my work over the last sort of three years become very project development focused so uh, after after I graduated and I did some interesting work um, on a couple of um, a couple of places abroad and then I started to work in UK conservation so I worked in marine policy so I worked for a national organization uh, working to get areas of the sea designated as marine protected areas I managed lots of surveys and I loved it um, but unfortunately it meant living a long way away from Daniel um, so Daniel was uh, about three hours away doing his PhD. So I wanted some mm. kind of work where we could be in the same place because although I'm ambitious, my relationship is also very important to me. Um, so I had taken, well, I, I <laughs> knew which bit of the country I wanted to work in. So I just went ahead and told all of the organizations working in that area that I wanted a job and waited to see if anybody needed anyone so I think one piece of advice I would say to people is be bold and um, don't be a wallflower don't be afraid of making yourself known you know if you've got good skills make sure people know that you're out there and actually off the back of that I was approached about a role which was to develop a large scheme um, in a part of England that's very underserved by kind of marine conservation so although there's a lot of very interesting marine life it's very post-industrial so it used to be a huge centre of coal mining so there was a lot of pollution issues it was once the most polluted coast in Europe um, and as a result it hadn't been the focus of much research or of much conservation effort so I was approached by an organisation working there to put together a large scheme um, and bring together partners so over about a year period I worked to bring together 15 different organisations which range from 
small local community groups all the way up to the relevant government departments that work in marine and coastal management and conservation and uh, built a project which is basically a scheme of around 30 individual projects that aim to either do practical conservation or work on increasing marine awareness and stewardship and um, the area that this will take place in is a really special bit of the country but not somewhere that people tend to go it's um, even the people that live there I you know I did a lot of engagement with communities and the people that have lived there their whole lives and never been down to the beach because to them the beach is this dirty polluted place when actually there are dolphins and amazing amazing wildlife in the rock pools and amazing fish out there but people don't know about it so this scheme is a five million pound scheme it's been a long time in development and we should have the final decision at the end of this year um, that money is from the lottery so in the UK we can apply to lottery funding for conservation projects um, they're very supportive of conservation projects. They have a dedicated fund within it um, that we can apply to. So I worked very closely with them to shape the bid. And then they they agreed. They liked our idea and they gave us £250,000 to further develop it. And that process is happening now. And then that will unlock um, a total of around £3 million from the lottery. And then the rest is from all of those partners that I've nagged and <laughs> worked with over the past two years um so I think the thing I'm proudest of is getting us all to work together we were all doing little bits but not bringing kind of ourselves together for the same problem and I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that we are greater than the sum of our parts when we work together and partnership working really is the way forward when we can put our own agendas and profile and badges aside and actually just realize we're working for the same goal um so most of my work now is around is in partnership working and trying to get us to join forces to to tackle this extinction crisis that we're all facing so it's getting funding is is become uh my i think probably the core of my work so i run my own business now um over the past two years again we're a couple i want us to be in the same place and the way we've found to do that is if one of us is location independent so i can be where daniel needs to be um mm -hmm. and in that i i um I work with lots of different charities to help them either pull in funding or to um, evaluate their work to make sure their work is doing what they think it is because actually in conservation actually doing what you say you're doing is sometimes not as easy as it seems. Yeah no that's a really good point though so you procure the funding and then you also kind of follow up to make sure that all, if it was a grant, all the grant requirements are kind of being met throughout the project process. Is that correct? Yeah. So helping them design um, how they will evaluate. So evaluation is this, this thing that for most of us is this boring thing you do at the end of a project when actually mm -hmm. it's something you should think of about whilst you're developing it in the first place. So understanding whether what you aim to do has actually had the impact that you wish it had. Um, and all too often that's an afterthought both in science and in conservation when really that's so important you know we say we want people to better understand the marine environment on their doorstep but then we don't look at what that understanding level is beforehand and we don't look at what that understanding level is afterwards so how would we know if our work was the thing that made the change we always have to think about that and that's become a big part of what I do um, so yeah it's not the glamorous bit but I think it, it, it does it helps us prove we're making a difference. 
It does. You know, it's not, it's, it can't be all field work. It's also no. about kind of bridging the gap between the field and the people that are affecting it. Right. So that's, that's yeah. important. I think, and as well for me, like I, I thought conservation was just about counting things or going out and doing the glamorous field work. And actually for me, particularly in the last two years, I've realized that conservation is about people. It's about changing attitudes. It's about changing minds. It's mm-hmm. about empowering people to make a difference and realizing that individually we can do that. So, so much of my work now is much more engagement focused and working with communities that normally get forgotten, the people that we don't immediately turn to. And in my mind, we all have a role to play and there's nobody who's who's not worth um getting involved you know we don't have to be trained scientists we don't have to be you know there is no one size fits all for what a conservationist look like looks like and for me that's how how do we reach those people how do we make them feel that actually their contribution is is valuable and valued as well absolutely so can you could you give an example of the communities that you're talking about um so for us uh so the areas i've worked in a lot of the communities, so the, the coastal communities, they are amongst the most deprived in the UK. They have been overlooked in in so many ways. Uh, within that, you have also these kind of other demographics. So I think we, we over-focus a lot of our engagement activity on young people. So we take out school groups and then we actually forget that there's a lot of, um, you know, adults who would also love the opportunity to do fun, interesting things in the place that they've grown up, but there isn't any kind of obvious, easy way to reach them. So it's thinking about using uh, structures that are already in place, so infrastructure that's already in place, so going through clubs or whatever, but also creating those structures so that there are ways for those people to get involved. And within that, there's things like so people who are disabled are not easily um, we can't get them to the sea often in as easily as we would able bodied people. Um, so a lot of our work is around using other um, means. So whether we can work with blind people using soundscapes, for example, whether we can work to get disabled people down and experience in the marine environment by using modified equipment. So like big paddle boards and things like that. So we can actually get them involved in a way that previously there was too much of a barrier to do so. So it's not just about um, creating a one size fits all and expecting people to just turn up. It's about kind of tackling those barriers in a proactive way. Um, and for me, that it's difficult, but it's possible. And I think it's all the more rewarding when you get people who otherwise would never have been able to experience this thing that the rest of us quite often take for granted. Absolutely. And the more people that experience it, the more more that they're going to want to help protect it. So Absolutely. You can only reach people through hearts, I think. We mm-hmm. traditionally have always expected that we just throw information facts figures at people and they'll that will be enough you know we're seeing this level of extinction or this level of warming or whatever mm-hmm. and that might speak to people like me people like daniel who are that way minded but actually if you can get people through their hearts instead of their heads i think it motivates a whole lot quicker and that ability to have a first-hand experience you know for me those first-hand experiences of the marine environment were so formative they made me who i am and it saddens me that people don't get that. And so it's a big part of my life work to make sure more people can. Wonderful. And this is for both of you. What is your favorite part about your job? Um, 
So I think for me, it's that um, this is a bit of a typical scientist answer, but that, that opportunity to know something that no human has ever known before, that mm. you can be the first to find something out. And I think uh, marine biology certainly still has an awful lot of that to give. There is so much that we just don't understand yet, don't don't know, even about some of the biggest animals on the planet we know so little. Um you know, we have uh, such huge parts of that that biosphere, you know, the deep sea that we know so little about. Mm. Um, so that opportunity there is is absolutely huge. Um, and those moments don't come very often. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of hard work and time spent behind a computer <laughs> before you get to that moment. Um, and usually after that kind of all-important um, sort of number crunching, uh, and statistics before you get to that moment but when you do it's it's truly special um but i think what's uh what's possibly even a little bit better than that is when you get those moments and realize that that bit of information could be important uh, important in um how we treat the environment how we manage the environment and knowing that i can take that sort of information and hand it over to someone like emily and she can turn it into something useful and um and make make good with it in the world i think for me it's those rewarding moments where you you have opened up that the marine environment for somebody and unfortunately i don't get it that often because so much of my time is spent in a strategic way you know i sit away in an office writing funding bids or writing strategies or you know i sit on a board of trustees for example and a lot of my time is you know in the nitty-gritty of of thinking big <laughs> but actually when i do get the chance to go out on the shore and see the product of all of that work and you go out and you see somebody and they're always different different shapes sizes backgrounds and you see them they turn up with such low expectations and then it's never anything massive it's like uh, a sea anemone or a particular bird or showing them a crab claw or something and and you can just see that their mind's blown that there is where they live is interesting and special and you realize that it's your work that has enabled that that barrier to be breaking down and hopefully there's a a new relationship being formed with the marine environment and I think for me because I love the sea particularly the UK sea so much to know that I've just one more person now also shares that is is really really special um so I yeah I think that's the my favorite bit of my job and makes all of the hours and hours and hours of funding <laughs> bid stress worthwhile yeah that could be very magical and transformative to watch actually for you even I could see yeah. that to see it freshly through somebody's eyes I think that yes. the work I was doing in Indonesia I was leading a field course and I you know as, when I was trying to replay what was my favorite moment and when you're the one who is showing students a sea turtle nesting and mm -hmm. I've seen it hundreds of times and it's still amazing you know mm -hmm. no matter how many times you see it but when you see it freshly through their eyes and the wonder and you, yeah, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And you're the one that's, that's opened that for them. And it is a true privilege to be able to teach and to share. Um, and I, yeah, I'm very grateful for those moments. Wonderful. Yeah. So that was actually something I wanted to circle back to. You also went to Indonesia yeah, and I did see your sea turtle nesting photo. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, 
I'm assuming you, who, who went first? Daniel got this opportunity and Emily, you found an opportunity to be with him. Is that correct? Uh, no. So we applied separately, actually. Same organization, but we were at different sites. So we didn't see each other uh, for the field season. We weren't in the same. We were both in Indonesia, but we were uh, a long way, about three or four days travel apart, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was I was at a marine site. So I was um, off the island of Borneo um, on um, an island called Darawan Island. So this is the first year that they, the Operation Wallace year, have been to the to Borneo. They've run a field site there. Um, so they have a forest site and a marine site. And um, I was, my role there was to lead a field course, so a marine ecology field course. So students would spend, uh, high school students would spend one week in the forest and then one week on the marine site. And the students would either learn to dive or those who could already dive or for various reasons couldn't learn to dive, they would join my field course. So I would give them, um, uh, so we would do a lecture and then we would go and do an in-water activity, whether that was snorkeling or diving on the subject that we'd just done. So we did everything from coral reef ecology to mangroves, to seagrasses, to sea turtles. Um, and I would give three lectures a day, run two activities, and um, then in the evenings I would lecture all of the students, so whether or not they were learning to dive on um, pretty much everything from reef fish, so they knew what they were looking at, to the future of coral reefs and how we can each uh, play a part in conserving coral for the future. Um, and also for me, a big draw of going in the first year is that it allowed me to kind of do what I do best, which is to scope out opportunities and help um, identify conservation and science um, priorities for the future so I went with almost no idea what I was letting myself into I'd never done anything like this before but I can honestly say it was one of the most magical six weeks of my entire life not only because of the wildlife that I saw um, you know I saw some amazing things dived with some amazing creatures and on some truly beautiful coral reefs but that ability to share those with young people people with passion people who wanted to make a difference and who I know will take a lot of what they've learned forward and make changes in their life and also go on and become advocates for the marine environment I think that was just beyond what I expected out of that time and I, I, I truly loved it and I genuinely would recommend that experience to anybody who is interested how cool is that so do you have do either of you have plans to go back? It's a, it's a distinct <laughs> possibility. I think we, we we both would love to. I think it depends. It's very hard, you know, our lives are um it's hard to make a months in advance plan sometimes, let alone yeah. a year. But I think we yeah. we can safely say we we're interested. We're very interested. <laughs> but I think that's an important point about careers in marine biology is that most aspects of work are relatively short contracts that mm. there are permanent jobs out there but they're very rare and um for some people and i think we can be included in this we quite like yeah. the, the fact that you have these short contracts and these short projects you go and work on um it keeps life really interesting um and that, that's really cool you get to work on lots of different things and we've usually got three or four different projects we're working on at once but it does of course bring some challenges you know if you are looking for a steady stable income for you know buying houses and things like getting married then that can be a challenge uh, yeah. in this career but you know it's it has its bonuses too so i think both both versions of marine biology 
life are possible. You know, there are um, permanent roles, both in conservation and in science. Mm -hmm. Like Daniel said, they are rare. Um, We can only talk really about the UK because that's where we have worked. We have worked elsewhere in the world too. Um, But we have chosen this. You know, we have chosen not to take permanent jobs. We have chosen this um, helter-skelter life because, Mm -hmm. you know, I for one get bored very quickly and that's why I love working for myself so I've worked for myself for two years now and I love the variety that it brings and it also means that you know when opportunities like Operation Wallace Deer come up I can just go off to Indonesia for for six weeks and not have to worry about my job or my income because I know it's there when I when I get back so um I think for us it is has been about it's taken us 10 years to find something that that really works and you know People don't always get it. Your family don't always get it. Your friends don't always get it because their lives are very different. But actually, both of us wouldn't. We don't want anything different. This is no. what we've chosen, um, and I love it. Yeah, me too. It's it's an exciting way to live. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like really incredible, really incredible opportunities that have come both your way. So I can see why you love it. What is something you wish you could go back and tell your younger selves? Yeah, I think for me, it's just to stay true, to mm-hmm. keep going and believe that it'll come good. I think there was definitely times, um, particularly when I, I, I tried really hard to do the normal thing. So I got a couple of jobs that I had and they were very much office jobs and very much the well-paid proper job I was meant to be doing at the age I was and my family was very pleased for me and they you know <laughs> they got it finally and I was just miserable and it, it just I knew it wasn't for me and I just desperately craved that colour and that adventure and the the element of discovery that I knew that I thought I wanted from marine biology and was sure I wanted but wasn't really sure how to make it happen and it was about having the guts to walk away from that stable good pensioned life and actually go after the thing that I knew I wanted um so I would say to people you know if your heart is set on something and it's what you really want then then make it happen because it is possible that neither of us had any connections or any clue whatsoever Mm -hmm. when we started out but it has just been sort of 10 years of trying sometimes failing and then getting to where we wanted to be and realizing there isn't a one size fits all for your life Mm -hmm. yeah definitely not and I think for me it would be something like be patient Mm -hmm. um building a career like this takes time um you know and we're only just getting to a stage now even after 10 years where we're able to sort of choose the work we do and uh, and pick the projects we want to get involved in um there's definitely been times over the past 10 years where you know we're kind of have small bits of uh, time where we've come back from an amazing project abroad and but then you have to go and work in a supermarket or something mm-hmm. for a few months until the next project and that's totally okay you've got to build it up piecemeal um and just kind of trust that in time if you keep going you, you'll get to where you want to and that certainly feels like you know we've done that now yeah do you have a favorite field story or stories to tell could be something crazy that happened or something really magical. Do you have one? Uh, I'm trying to pick one. That's the problem. I say for, I think for me, um, my dolphin soup, which is far nicer than it sounds. Um, I, when I was finishing up my master's, um, I was asked to lead some dolphin surveys for the Welsh government. And um, 
basically how it worked was somebody would spot dolphins they would ring me i would see if the boat was available and then we'd just reactively go out and, and run a survey um because they were photo id surveys rather than kind of abundance surveys and this happened one saturday afternoon and i had nobody to take with me i needed at least me and one person to so i would take the photos and i needed somebody to do effort um record effort so i asked daniel if he would come with me because (laughs) (laughs) needs must so we rushed down to the port which was on the other side of the island we lived on and jumped on the boat and headed out um into the bay that was um it ended up being the bay right where we lived so we were in this very familiar place and I was there with Daniel and it was an amazing kind of clash of my work world and then my my world you know my personal life Mm -hmm. and we were there and we were surrounded by I think there was 106 in the end 106 bottlenose dolphins and um, so in the winter in the UK they tend to form uh, the Irish sea population they tend to form these kind of big super groups that are working together to forage and so I was frantically taking photos and um they were I was recognizing some of them it was really lovely and then we I remember we sort of because they were quite fragmented over an area we'd gone at a reasonably high speed um, over to another group that were over the other side of the bay and um, whilst we were doing it uh, there was a group of juveniles who were really interested in the boat and they were bow riding um, Mm. but they were really leaping so we were stood at the front just the two of us and the skipper of the boat and they were almost eye level and we were sort of looking at each other realizing how incredibly lucky we were that a to be experiencing this and b that it was our job that we were doing science that we were in this incredibly insane experience right next to where we lived and i realized that when else would you ever be eye to eye with this huge apex predator which is what they are in in our system and you know they're four meters of bulk wild animal and they're as interested as you as you are in them and you're just a couple of meters away from them they're so close you can smell their fishy breath you know it's just (laughs) the most amazing experience and to be able to share that with your partner I think was one of the best days of my life for sure Um, (laughs) I loved it I absolutely loved it it was home it was dolphins and it was you I've just realized as Emily's telling that story that the story I had in my head has although a completely different situation a completely different place has so many incredible parallels okay um, so <laughs> I think you'll notice some similarities here. So um, one project that uh, or one job that we both had together um, was working on a tiny um, island in the middle of the Atlantic called Ascension Island. Um, so Ascension Island is a British overseas territory, um, really, really remote place. Um, uh, it's generally just somewhere that you might hop off to maybe on the way to the Falklands. It has two large military bases. Um Anyway, this is a, a job that we applied for where we were managing a uh, sort of a small t- turtle research group. And um, interestingly, it was a job that was advertised for one person. And we put in a, a sort of joint application that says, hey, you can have two for the price of one. Um, so right, we'll split the salary, but you get two scientists. And that they thought that was a real good bargain. Yeah. So they took it. <laughs> um, but part of our, our job um, when we were on the island was um, monitoring the, the nesting sea turtles. Um, mm. It has essentially has the second largest um, rookery of green sea, sea turtles in the South Atlantic, and um, what we had to do was at night uh, when the turtles came ashore, um, we'd wait until uh, a turtle was laying, 
uh, her eggs and we'd put a temperature recorder in, in the middle of the nest um, so we could track the temperature of, of the nest um, during the, that kind of uh, incubation period. Um, the reason being that that impacts um, the sort of sex ratio of the eggs that are born. Um, mm -hmm. So the warmer temperatures creates females and the lower temperatures creates uh, male uh, uh, offspring. Um, and there was this this one particular night where we were on this beach that is uh, just below uh, some cliffs that is next to um, the big U.S. Air Force Base on the island. And it was just myself and Emily on the beach that night. And um, it was uh, an incredibly beautiful, starry night, really clear. You could hear the waves crashing on, on the shore. Um, out um, over the ocean, there was um, some big storm clouds and bright sort of uh, sort of uh, uh, flashes of, of lightning. Um, and we were sort of laid on the beach. Um, and on the beach, um, there is all these huge kind of, uh, sort of divots, big kind of holes in, in the sand where previous nests have been and the turtles have dug holes. It kind of looks a bit like a, a World War One battlefield with all these kind of <laughs> shell scrapes. So you're kind of hiding in one of these, uh, waiting for a, for a turtle to come up and dig a nest. Um, they're incredibly easily spooked, so you have to be sort of stay out of sight and wait for them to, to start laying before you approach. And um, we were in one of these uh, holes, and um, turtles certainly aren't the brightest of animals. That <laughs> they're incredibly um uh, interesting majestic. majestic but they're intelligent they are not and um <laughs> you you find sometimes that they will uh crawl over each other and kind of get in the way of each other and then um uh, this one particular night one tried to sort of come over into our hole and and narrowly miss us not really realizing um that we were there um <laughs> and uh it was just amazing like emily's story with the dolphins you can you can smell them you can tell from their smell that they they eat seagrass they have that kind of distinct kind of uh grassy smell a bit like a cow um and they're they're really big and it was just incredibly magic to be on this beautiful location um seeing this majestic animal smelling and hearing this majestic animal um go through this sort of cycle that turtles have been doing for um, millions and millions of years and to be sharing that moment with the person that I love and just realizing how incredibly lucky we were to to have that kind of moment and so yeah, yeah some, some parallels with the stories there but just yeah, a different absolutely. time absolutely both are such magical stories I love it great great job guys great field stories <laughs> I'm sitting over here cackling because we have green sea turtles that nest on our beaches here in South Florida as well yeah. and I've done some sea turtle research as well and they do. They truly have craters as body pits. And I'm envisioning you guys kind of in your own little bunker of a green nest yep. waiting for <laughs> other ones to come up on the beach. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, just peeking over the edge. Is it so I have a couple more things before we kind of wrap up here. My favorite question to ask, what is your favorite sea creature and why? Okay, I, I'm going to go for this one first. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so for me, it's... Um, it's pretty easy. It's um, one of the, the deep water sharks that I studied during my master's, um, a shark called the, the ghost cat shark, um, uh, Apristurus apiodes, its Latin name. And um, it's, it's relatively small. Maybe it's only sort of a foot and a half long, that kind of length. Um, but it has this real pale, ghostly kind of color. It's, it's um, kind of just an off-white color. And they have these... 
um, magnificent reflecting eyes um, that helps them pick out even the slightest bit of light um, from any kind of bone bioluminescent prey that it might be hunting in the deep water and um, they are very slow moving in the water they're not a fast species like we might think of like a mako shark or something like that um, but just uh, that time I spent during my master's studying and trying to understand the species that so many humans will never ever come into contact with um, was incredible and it left a sort of real profound uh, sort of view of the the ocean on me and the, the fact that we know so little and that every encounter we have with any any species is a huge privilege um and certainly working with that that species felt like a privilege to me but it's something that has certainly transferred to you know every other animal mm. i come into contact with in the ocean but so that that's my favorite because yeah it left its mark on me that is such a hard question but i think <laughs> i think my answer is probably the flat oyster, sometimes called the native oyster, because yeah. actually on their own, they are, you know, kind of boring. But actually, they what they do for the marine environment, so they create these amazing reefs that become homes to hundreds of other species. They play such an important role in water quality, in filtering mm-hmm. out pollutants and sediment they play a role in carbon sequestration so they're an important blue carbon habitat um and i think that they are a big part of my future work um very much excited about the potential for habitat restoration in the uk and they're one of the the habitats so the species and habitats that i would like to work more on but i just think they are on their own like what an oyster boring but actually together they are so important they are the superheroes of the sea without doubt and there's something that I my attitude to has changed a lot over the last year as I've learned more about them and and the potential for what they could do for coastal and marine ecosystems in the places that I work um so yeah previously I would have done your normal cuttlefish slash dolphin I think would have been my answer (laughs) but it's definitely moving towards oysters so i think oysters are the future <laughs> that's awesome i saw on your website that you're you are working with oysters and that you're an oyster girl and i got really excited because i've also done work with oysters we have a different species over here but same concept they filter massive amounts of water they have they provide wonderful habitat mm-hmm. they're kind of like a wonderful cornerstone for habitat restoration and so i do yeah. have a little soft spot for the little shelled dudes as well <laughs> yeah I think we have a lot to learn you guys in the states are you know light years ahead of us on on oyster restoration but i think it's something we're catching up on um in the uk and and i think it's going to be a big part of uk conservation in the next uh couple of years sort of five-year period i think we're going to be doing a lot more of restoration of rewilding our seas um, and it's much needed you know our seas have a huge amount of potential but they are very much degraded shadows of what they once were and you know um excited about playing a part in in helping them get back to what they should be i always like to do a conservation ask at the end of the episode do you guys have something that you would like for the audience to kind of take away from this or go out and do or see yes so i think for me for both of us actually we um, would encourage anybody listening to 
it's quite simply to get outside so if you live near the sea then go to the seaside go rock pooling tide pooling get a mask and snorkel if you can and just have a look what's there even if that's just sitting on the rocks and watching the crabs or the seabirds if you don't live by the coast get out to the river to the lake to the park to the canal wherever it is and just take a few minutes to see what is around you because I guarantee there will be more than you expect I think we are conditioned particularly in the UK to think that cool wildlife is somewhere else I certainly thought I'd have to go to tropical places to see dolphins for example never knowing that actually we have them right here in the UK until I went to university um and I think it's not only good for you you know it's good for your health your well-being your mental health to take time to notice nature it's also really important part of becoming a good conservationist if you can see what's around you it helps you not only connect with your mind but with your heart to what's there and if we have experienced that stuff firsthand then we are more likely to change our behavior and become those advocates those voices for nature that I think a lot of us who work in conservation you know we don't only we need to do it ourselves not only encourage other people to do it so I know for my own mental health at times when it's been challenged taking that time to enjoy wildlife has been a huge part of my recovery so please do take the time to go out and have a look and if there's a local wildlife organization where you are just have a look at what they're doing and see if they might need some help so if you can volunteer a couple of hours whether it's an hour on a Saturday morning or you know one afternoon a month then you don't have to be a scientist you don't have to be a conservationist you don't have to have a degree any of those things to go and help they need all kinds of skills. They need people from all walks of life to be able to bring their knowledge, experience and perspectives to this conservation fight that we all have on our hands. So if you are able to do that, then please think locally as well as nationally, because I'm sure they'll be grateful of your time. Great yeah. advice. Yeah. Um, Great. Just one second. That, that's, that's exactly what we want people to do. Get outside, appreciate what is just on your doorstep, you know, no matter where we live on this planet, we all have incredible wildlife. Um, we just need to take the time to to look and to listen. Notice it. Yeah. So if listeners want to, where can they find you guys? Uh, so we are on Instagram. We are at Marine Biology Life. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which is also called Marine Biology Life. And we're on Twitter, which is Marine Biology Life. But our <laughs> handle is Marine Biology L. <laughs> on twitter and you can find your way to both of us from those places so we also have our own personal accounts but you can find us on those main things my name is emily cunningham and daniel is daniel moore fantastic i'll put a link in the show notes for anybody that wants to check those out thank you and we're always happy to hear from people if you have questions or you want any advice particularly if you're uk based and want advice about the uk education system or finding a job or where to look for jobs or anything like that please do feel free to send us a message we genuinely are happy to help yeah or equally if you've been out um and seen something cool in the sea just let us know we love to hear good cool things as well yeah living vicariously while we're at our (laughs) (laughs) desks absolutely well thank you guys do you have anything else that you'd like to add marine biology is the best job in the world (laughs) it's not easy it is hard takes tenacity but it's worth it so if you're thinking about it and aren't sure whether it's for you um just give it a go um i don't think you'll regret it no and if you want that extra challenge to your career 
do it as a couple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doubly hard, but doubly rewarding. It is, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for being on. It was awesome chatting with you. Oh, thank you so Thanks much for having, for having us. us. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment over in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, and of course, share with your friends. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. One more thing. Have you checked out the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist Patreon page? Patreon is a marvelous site that allows creators to be supported by their audience, you. We have some ocean-tastic categories for you to join, from foundational phytoplankton to enigmatic sea turtle. There's some exciting bonuses on there, from shout-outs on the podcast to bonus episodes that only you will get. Your support helps to create more episodes about ocean science and conservation. For more information on how you can be an official member of the Marine BioLife pod, please visit patreon.com backslash marinebiolife. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.